There is a common saying in our culture when someone is trying to motivate another person to get organized in life or get on track in life, and that is the saying, get your act together. That expression means to pull together the loose ends of your life so that you're not distracted and you're not bogged down with things that can get in the way of what you need to do in life. We all know what is meant by the statement, get your act together. There was a similar expression used by people in the first century. It was the saying, gird up your loins. You see, men often wore long garments that looked similar to a modern-day bathrobe with a cloth belt around the waist. That kind of garment was not very conducive for running or for wrestling or for fighting or for other kinds of physical activity because the long bottom portion could easily get caught up in your legs and slow you down or trip you. Therefore, whenever a man was about to engage in some kind of physical activity, he would reach down to grab the end of his garment and he would pull it up and tuck it into his belt. That would prevent the loose ends from flapping around and getting in the way. That preparation of tucking the loose ends of the garment into your belt was called girding up your loins. When the expression was used literally, it meant to get ready and get prepared for action. When the expression was used metaphorically, it meant to get your act together in life. The Apostle Peter used that exact phrase to exhort his first century readers and us to make sure that we are ready for action in the Christian life. Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I invite you to follow along as I read verses 3 through 15, or 3 through 16, though uh, we will only be focusing on verses 13 through 16. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials." that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation... The prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, 
Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. As we have seen in the first few messages in this series, the Apostle Peter wrote this letter to a group of Christians that were going through some hard times. In verse 6, he said they were experiencing various or all kinds of trials. When that is our experience in life, it is very easy for us to become discouraged. And when we become discouraged, it is very easy for us to lapse in the Christian life. Therefore, in the opening section of this letter, Peter sought to address both of those tendencies. In verses 3 through 12, he sought to encourage his readers by reminding them that those of us who belong to Jesus Christ are immensely blessed. We are privileged beyond words. We have been granted a salvation that is secure, and it has a living hope, and it has an indescribable inheritance, and it is the subject of fascination among the angels. So even when we are being grieved by various trials, we can rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Thus, Peter seeks to encourage his readers in verses 3 through 12. From there, he goes on to address the second potential pitfall of walking through grievous trials, which is the tendency to become discouraged and lapse in the Christian life. You see, when we get discouraged, it's very easy to make poor decisions about things that we know we ought to do or ought not to do. We can easily adopt an attitude that says, what does it really matter? When you're worn down and you're worn out from trials, it's very easy to stop doing things we ought to continue doing, or we start doing things we should not be doing. Peter was well aware of this inclination, and that's why he began to give exhortations in verses 13 and following. Notice how he begins after laying out these verses of encouragement. Now he begins his exhortation, verse 13. Therefore, and you know the first rule of Bible study, whenever you see a therefore or a wherefore, stop and see what it's there for. There is a connection between what Peter has just said, in light of all that God has done for us, in light of the fact you're going through trials, in light of all of these things, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Most translations render the first part of this verse, prepare your minds. Because most people wouldn't know what is meant, at least most people in our culture wouldn't know what is meant by the phrase, gird up the loins of your mind. But the literal verb here is gird up or bind up. However, we know that Peter is using the verb metaphorically because he goes on to say, gird up the loins of your mind not gird up the long garment that is hanging down around your feet. His exhortation is to make sure that you are ready for action. Make sure you don't have things that are restricting you in your walk with God. Make sure that you are prepared to do what God wants you to do in life. Gird up the loins of your mind. 
That's his point. And I think it's significant that he doesn't merely say, gird up for action. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. The mind is a key aspect of our Christian lives. How we think and how we reason and how we see things in life is critical. Our perspective, our outlook, our focus, those things are crucial. So it is not surprising that Peter begins with this exhortation. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get your thinking together. Get your thought life together. That's what Peter is saying. 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us that we need to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought. Some people would never allow themselves to think thoughts of sexual immorality. But they allow themselves to think about grudges they have toward people. Resentment they have toward people around them. Paul says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things above. Philippians 4.8 tells us to think on good things, pure things, things that are noble, things that have virtue. I'm sure you have all heard the slogan, you are what you eat. That's not really true. In Matthew 15, Jesus said that food does not defile us, but evil thoughts do defile us. You are not what you eat. Some people say you are what you wear. That's not true either. Do you remember what God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7? The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You are not what you wear. You are not what you eat, and you are not what you wear. Let me mention another one. You are not what you think you are. In Romans 12, 3, Paul says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly or clearly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. In other words, we have a natural tendency to be biased in relation to ourselves. It's very difficult for us to see ourselves objectively, clearly, honestly. So we have this bias. We have a tendency to think either more highly of ourselves than we ought to think or sometimes maybe more lowly when we underestimate the gifts, the strengths, the the abilities God has given us. So you are not what you think you are. You're not what you eat. You're not what you wear. You're not what you think you are. You are what you think. That's scary when you realize that 85% of the people don't think, 10% think they think, and only 5% think. I'm sure you've heard the saying, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Romans 12.2 says we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Frankly and sadly, a lot of Christians don't like to hear this because they live their Christian life by their emotions and by their feelings, by their experiences. 
If they feel like doing something, they do it. If they don't feel like doing it, they don't do it. It's just go by whatever they feel like. But beloved, God never intended the Christian life to be a mindless kind of experience. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. In many ways, we are what we think. That is why the Bible places so much emphasis on the importance of truth and sound doctrine. Jesus, in his prayer to the Father in John 17, 17, said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In fact, you might find it interesting to know that the most emphasized subject of the New Testament is warning against false doctrine. That's right. The most emphasized subject of the New Testament is warning against false doctrine. God warns against that so often because He knows that we are what we think and we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Sound doctrine is tremendously important. Unfortunately, today, there is a dangerous tendency within Christianity to sacrifice and compromise God's truth for the sake of a supposed love or supposed unity. God never intended that. Listen to this poem about two sisters, love and unity, who married two husbands, doctrine and truth. It illustrates this point. With hearts so kind and gentle and sympathetic eye, with touching deep affection and loyal tender tie, was love betrothed to doctrine to hold him all her days and walk the aisle of gladness united in his ways. Her younger sister also had qualities as fair, of caring, selfless kindness and warmth without compare. Thus unity was drawn to the husband of her youth and pledged herself forever to be the bride of truth. But time with bitter envy across the testing years pursued the slow erosion of happiness to tears. Till love began to weary of doctrine's pleasant voice and unity grew cold to the partner of her choice. Then love began to notice the charms of heresy. And awed by his opinion, she wanted to be free. And unity perceived that her virtues were desired by many, many others whose ways she so admired. At length, two precious unions, so promising, so blessed, were darkened by delusion, disloyalty, unrest. Till came the day of sorrows, and rending vows of youth when love divorced her doctrine and unity her truth. What a tragedy it is when God's people throw out truth in the name of a false unity or false love. Truth is of utmost importance because we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. Dr. Tim LaHaye, in his book, The Battle for the Mind, has written this, quote, Ever since God first spoke to Adam and Eve, explaining to them how to think so they would know how to live successful and happy lives, there has been a consistent battle over who will control the thought processes of man's mind, man or God. God. 
Sooner or later, every human being makes that decision. And the result is his or her philosophy of life. Until this generation, parents were the most influential force in helping a child formulate his philosophy. That is no longer true. Modern technology has found ingenious ways to assault the mind of man and child with incredibly beautiful sounds, colors, and visual imagery. Millions of parents have already lost their children's minds to rock stars, atheistic, humanistic educators, sensual entertainers, and a host of other anti-God, amoral, anti-man influences. He continues, Since you are what you think, your thought processes today are largely the result of the input that has come to your mind via your eyes and ears. If you are not careful, you will lose the battle for control of your mind and the minds of your children, end quote. Later in that same book, he makes this great insight. Quote, feelings are not spontaneous. To control them, you must first control your mind. That is a profound statement. Feelings are not spontaneous. To control them, you must first control your mind. My guess is that less than 25% of Christians would know that and believe that. So many believe that you can't help how you feel. You You just feel. Well, feelings are not spontaneous. To control them, you must first control your mind. Our Christianity today has a tremendous emphasis on feelings and emotions. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has accurately characterized our society when he wrote this, quote, Reason is being distrusted and set off to the side. Following D.H. Lawrence, many are saying that our troubles are actually due to the fact that we have overdeveloped our cerebrum. We must listen more to our blood and go back to nature, people say. And so, turning against intellectualism and deliberately espousing the creed of irrationality, they yield themselves to the desire for experience and they place sensation above understanding or feeling above understanding. The attitude is what matters is feeling and enjoyment, not thought. Pure thought leads nowhere, end quote. That is the prevailing attitude in Christianity today. I'm reminded of what God said through the prophet Hosea. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. God knows that one of the keys to spiritual stability is learning to think the right way. Learning to process things the right way. If you are not clear in your thinking, then you probably won't be clear in your living. Now please hear me when I make this next statement. I am not implying that the Christian life is merely an intellectual exercise. It is not merely an intellectual exercise. But there is no denying the fact that knowing, understanding, and embracing truth is foundational in the Christian life. That is why one of Satan's primary tactics is to get us to believe lies. Just look at how he brought down Adam and Eve. Think about that. First, he planted doubts in their minds about the Word of God. 
Did God really say that? You sure God really said that? And then he planted doubts in their minds about the character of God. Oh, God told you not to eat of that because he's, he's holding out on you. He's depriving you. Let me tell you something, beloved. Satan has been using those same tactics ever since. He uses them very effectively today in people's lives. You can't really believe the Bible because it has errors and mistakes and contradictions. And, and because it was written so long ago, it's out of date. That's what a lot of people believe. Those are common lies in our day and age. God doesn't want what is best for you. He's trying to deprive you. He's holding out on you. He's mean. He doesn't want you to have joy in life. Those are common lies in our day and age. Those are the kinds of lies Satan propagates. And let me tell you something. If Satan can get you to doubt the word of God or the character of God, then he has you right where he wants you. And even as I make this statement, beloved, my mind just is is full of, of people I've known over the last 30 years who have bought into those lies, and today their lives are a tragedy. So watch it in your own life. If you begin to entertain thoughts that doubt the word of God or doubt the character of God, you can guarantee those thoughts are coming from the enemy of your soul. That's the way he has worked ever since the very beginning. That's one of the reasons why you need to gird up the loins of your mind, as Peter says here in verse 13. But those aren't the only lies in our world. Christians sometimes believe lies about relationships and lies about finances and lies about science and lies about education. Our world is full of untruths and half-truths, so we need to be sharp in our thinking. We need to think clearly. We need to think accurately. We need to think biblically. We need to pull our thoughts together and tighten up all the loose ends in our thinking. That's what Peter is saying here in verse 13 when he says, Gird up the loins of your mind. By the way, this is why it is so important that you don't lose your drive to continue learning the Word of God. Some Christians get to the point where they start thinking, you know, I've heard some of this stuff before. Yes, but do you know it? Can you use it? Can you use it in your own life? Can you use it in the lives of others? Remember, one of the purposes for you to be here Sunday morning and evening is to sharpen your thinking and your ability to use God's Word with others. It's not all about you. It's also about your ministry to other people. It's about your responsibility to other people. Don't ask the question, have I, have I heard some of this before? Ask the question, could I present this to someone else for their benefit? Do I know this well enough to pass it on myself? Beloved, be on guard for the common tendency to lose your drive and passion for learning the Word of God, especially especially if you've been around the church for a while. The opening phrase in this verse, in verse 13 here, is a call to action. Gird up the loins of your mind. This is an abrupt exhortation to diligence. It is intended to shake us out of our complacency. It's like a command from a drill sergeant. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get your act together. But Peter doesn't stop there. 
The next command has the same intensity. He says, be sober. Once again, Peter is speaking metaphorically. It goes without saying that we shouldn't be drunk. But Peter is saying more than that. He is saying that we ought to be awake. We ought to be alert. We ought to be sharp spiritually. When a person is physically drunk, he is lethargic, sluggish, not self-controlled, and maybe even dormant. It is possible to be that way spiritually as well. That's why Peter gives this exhortation. We need to make sure that we are spiritually sober, spiritually sharp. It means that we are spiritually alert. It means that we know what is important in life, and we know what needs to be done to keep those things as priorities in our lives, which means we have discipline and self-control. In fact, the NIV translates this verb, be self-controlled. That's part of what is involved in this exhortation to be sober. It's interesting to note that 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.8, Titus 2.2, and Titus 2.6, all written by the Apostle Paul, use a similar term to the Greek word that Peter uses here, and it's translated in our English versions, sober-minded. The phrase sober-minded means serious-minded, and the idea is serious about your walk with God, serious about your Christian life, serious about God. Why does that come up so often in Scripture? Because it is a fact that even many Christians are not as serious about God as they ought to be. Other things in life are far more important to them. Other things in life are their focus. God's just an afterthought with many. As I heard someone describe it this week, yeah, for this person, God is sort of on the back burner. He's there in the person's life, but on the back burner. God doesn't occupy the place He deserves in the lives of many Christians. He's not the driving force in their lives. He's not the focus. That's why this concept and exhortation comes up several times in the New Testament. It's important that we are spiritually sober, sober-minded. By the way, this doesn't mean that you ought to go around in life looking like you just drank a bowl of vinegar. You aren't more spiritual if you look that way, okay? Being serious about God doesn't mean that you're a stick in the mud. There's no virtue in that. It's not the idea at all. It's just that you know the priorities in life. You know what matters in life, and that is where you are self-controlled and disciplined. The third exhortation in this verse is, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter has already mentioned this future hope back in verses 3, 4, 5, 7, and 9. We have a future hope that is living, and we have an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us. Now, many Christians know about this future hope, but it is a sad fact that not all Christians who know about it are focused on it and living in light of it. Frankly, for many Christians... This is simply ho-hum. Sure, they know what the Word of God has to say about what's in store for us, but the fact of the matter is that they are a lot more interested in the things of this life. That's why Peter says, Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is basically saying, Let that truth grip your heart. Let it make a difference in your life here and now. 
And then Peter adds another exhortation, verse 14. He says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. In other words, don't live like you used to live when you were ignorant of the truth. Now that you are joined to Christ, your behavior should be different. This is basically the same thing that the Apostle Paul said in Romans 12 too, when he wrote, Do not be conformed to this world. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. That is a present tense verb, by the way, which means this pressure will have to be resisted continuously for the rest of our lives. We never get time off from this. This world has its own value system, which is quite different than God's value system. God's value system is composed of that which is eternal, namely His Word and people. The world's value system is composed of self and things. Therefore, we are exhorted not to allow the world to squeeze us into its mold or into its value system. Lenski said it this way, and I quote, There is danger that the Christian may adopt at least some of the world's ways, run with worldly men, especially when they mock us if we do not. Christians sometimes imagine that they can do this without injury to themselves, can remain unspotted from the world amid worldly unchristian associations, amid worldly and questionable pleasures, to howl a bit with the wolves, to do as the Romans do because we are in Rome, to avoid the abuse of the world and not to lose all this tainted pleasure and advantage while still holding fast to Christ does not seem so wrong. The resultant casualties are many and exceedingly sad, end quote. Don't miss that last statement. It was written by a wise man. The resultant casualties are many and exceedingly sad. Many are the Christians who have allowed this world to squeeze them into its mold. It's tragically sad how many Christians are conformed to this world and have adopted the priorities of this world, have adopted the value system of this world. They have lapsed right back into the kind of behavior they had when they were in a state of spiritual ignorance. Peter warns us, don't do that. Don't retreat backward. Don't backslide. Progress forward. So he adds the exhortation in verse 15. He says, but in contrast to this, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In light of the context, Peter is saying, listen, don't allow discouragement to eat away and chip away at your resolve to holiness. God is the one who has graciously called us into his family. God is the one who has called us into this relationship with him. That is a privilege beyond description. He has called us and he wants us to mimic his character. He is holy and therefore we should be holy. Quick quiz here. Because you know this verse. You've heard this many times in your Christian life. Be holy as I am holy. So if I were to ask you, what is a synonym... For holy, you don't have to answer this out loud. In fact, don't answer it out loud because you might be wrong. Uh, If you were to think, what is a synonym for holy? What word would come to your mind? 
My guess is for most Christians, they would think, well, a synonym for holy is righteous. Holy, righteous. No, no. The word holy doesn't merely mean righteous. It includes that idea, but there's much more to it than that. The root meaning of the word holy is unique or distinct. So when the Bible says God is holy, that means more than just He is righteous. Yes, He is righteous, but it means He is separate and distinct from all His creatures and from sin. The most basic or fundamental meaning of the word is separateness or uniqueness. You could say it this way. God is in a class all by Himself. That's what it means when we say He is holy. This attribute of God is not coordinate with his other attributes. What I mean is, if you are studying theology, or you are writing theology, or teaching theology, it would not be accurate to say that holiness is here along with love, justice, righteousness, etc. God's holiness is not on par with his love. It's not really on par with his mercy, with his grace, his patience, etc. God's holiness applies to all those attributes. So we can say that God's love is holy or it's unique. God's patience is holy or or unique. His righteousness is holy or unique. God's holiness permeates all his other attributes. He is holy, unique, separate, distinct. And as his children, we are called to be holy. That means more than just called to be righteous. We are called to be unique in this world. We should not be just like everyone else in the world. Or just like we were before we were called into God's family. That's what Peter just said in verse 14. That's why he follows it with this call to holiness. Don't conform yourself to your former lusts in your ignorance. Don't be like you used to be when you were like everybody else. Be different. Be unique. Instead of living like we used to live or living like people who don't know God, we should live uniquely. We should live distinctly. As people get to know us, they should, if if not say it out loud, at least in their minds think, there's something different about that person. Something unique there. Maybe maybe if they they can't even put their finger on what it is, maybe they don't know for a while exactly what it is, but they should sense there's something different about that person. Something unique. We should stand out as different or unique in our character. People should be able to see that there's something different about us because of the presence of Christ in our lives. As Hein, the German philosopher, said, show me your redeemed life and I might believe in your Redeemer. That's fair, isn't it? I think it's fair. Show me your redeemed life. Show me me the difference Christ makes in your life. We should be holy, unique, distinct, separate. To reinforce this truth, Peter quotes from Hebrew Scripture to show that this this idea, this concept, really isn't anything new. It's always what God has wanted of His people. So he quotes in verse 16, he says, Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. This is a quote all the way back from the book of Leviticus, all the way back there. 
All the way back then, God's expectation was that His people would be distinct in the way He lived. Now, in the Old Testament, you know how God accomplished that? You know what His means was, His his approach? He gave them His law. You know, studying the Old Testament law is a fascinating thing because those who will be intellectually honest will have to admit there are just a number of laws that we have absolutely no uh, no understanding of the reason behind them. It makes no sense whatsoever. None. We can speculate, but we don't really know. But what we do know is God gave His people those laws so that if they followed them, they would be different. They definitely would be unique. They would be distinct from the other societies around them. Living by the law would cause the people to be distinct from those around them. God's desire is the same for us today. The means by which we demonstrate our uniqueness is not by the Mosaic law. The New Testament is clear on that, abundantly clear on that. But our lives should demonstrate the difference that is made when Jesus Christ is in a life. So I ask you this morning, does your life show a difference? Think about that. Does your life really show a difference in the way you talk? In the way you act, the way you react, your attitudes, does your life show a difference? Beloved, if our lives don't show a difference, then we are poor advertising for the power of the cross. Peter understood that. And that's why he says in this section, basically what he says in verses 13 through 16 is this. If you're a Christian, if you call yourself a child of God, get your act together. Get your act together. Live the way a Christian ought to live. That's what we're called to do. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes so that you're not distracted by any movement around you, I I ask you to, I urge you to really pose that question honestly to yourself. Does your life show a difference? At work, school, sports, whatever is on your plate, whatever is your circle, does your life show a difference? If you're a child of God, it should. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, someone who knows Christ, your life should show a difference. And if it doesn't, you need to get your act together. That's what the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Peter. You need to get your act together. So if you're here today and you are a child of God, then examine your life. Examine the words you use, the attitudes you have, the reactions you give to things in life, responses, all of that. And see if you really have your act together. And where you don't, take that to the Lord. Take that to the cross. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if Christ isn't in your life, then obviously that difference won't show up. So humble yourself right right now, right there where you're seated, just in your heart, humble yourself. Ask God to forgive you. Ask Jesus Christ to come into your life to change you, to make you the man or the woman he wants you to be. Ask him for his salvation. Tell him you want to know him and begin living for Him. So, Father, these things are our prayer. We pray for anyone here 
with us who cannot rightly call you Father because they have no relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit draw them, bring them, bring conviction to their hearts so that they would humble themselves, let go of whatever is holding them back, and surrender to Jesus Christ in simple childlike faith. And Father, for those of us who do know your Son and call you our Father, then may we hear the the straightforwardness of this exhortation that we have seen in your word this morning, where we are told in, in so many words, get your act together. Because as your people, as your children, we have an immense responsibility to represent you properly to a watching world, to represent you well to those around us. So may we be sensitive to your spirit Wherever we need to address things in our lives, may we be quick to do so, willing to do so, eager to do so. We pray for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.